Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you. A massive Cade Mila Falchikadi, Anchuk Salas, Bali Aklia, Anuv, August, Dunyalgan. Welcome to Lighthouse Dublin. Welcome to Navin. Welcome to Doc. And to those, all those watching online, wherever you are, we're so glad that you are here with us. Uh, we are in part two of a series called Mission Matters. Before I jump into today's content, I just want to take a moment to highlight a special group of people. And it is not the La Rochelle supporters, let me tell you. Uh, it is, however, uh, the hundreds of people that every week make what we do possible. This morning, as I was up early, as is my custom, to pray and prepare for today, uh, I was noticing in my phone different chats, different teams, like around 7 a.m., even before 7 a.m., texting, planning, preparing, communicating. Some were up late last night. All of them were up early this morning in Navin, in the dock, and in Dublin. So can we give, come on, a massive boule bus, a massive round of applause for everyone that serves in our dream teams in all three locations. Listen, listen, listen. We do not take you for granted. We don't celebrate you every Sunday, but every now and again, it's good to say thank you. So on behalf of myself and everybody in all three locations, a massive go rev meal and We're so grateful. Uh, for you. And of course, if you're new today uh, here or any of our venues, you're especially welcome. So what are we talking about when it comes to this theme, this topic of mission matters? Well, what we're trying to say, the, the kind of point I want to get across over these few weeks is that our church has a purpose, is on purpose, is for purpose, is of purpose, and our purpose isn't just to get together and do church every Sunday. We get to do this, this is wonderful, we love this, but this is a tool, this is a step, this is a part in the process. Our purpose is to live out God's purpose for our lives. So in essence, you could say, when the service ends every Sunday, that's when church really begins. When we leave the four walls of our, of our, of our locations and we go out into our communities, we go home to our family, we go to work, back to college, back to school, whatever it is that we do life, even online, in our various online groups, that's what it is to be a church. Who we are when we leave these venues is really what it means to be a church. And so we're asking the question, well, what is the mission? What is the purpose of the church? Well, last week in week one, and again, it's on YouTube, if you want to watch for free, we, uh, as a form of recap, the message was called, Your Church, Your Purpose, or Your People, Your Purpose. In other words, church is people. Therefore, you're, you are people. Therefore, if you're a Jesus follower, the house is home, you're the church. And because the church is you and you're the church, the purpose of the church is yours. You can't be a Jesus follower and part of the church and not be part of the church's purpose. And the church cannot have a purpose outside of God's people that make up that church. And what we were talking about last week is the power of the gospel. That yes, we like to have a good time. You know, the crack is mighty in Lighthouse, all three locations. We love to have fun. We love to laugh. If you don't laugh, you cry. If you live in Ireland, you'll cry a lot unless you laugh. Laughter is the laughter at least one week in Spain a year, everybody. Costa del Sol is the is the key, is the trick to surviving life in Ireland. So we love all these things, but beyond that, there's a sense where the gospel saves, the gospel transforms. The gospel is the only power available to man that completely transforms a human heart. And we looked at last week is that in our polytheistic culture, most people are quite happy with you having your faith and your belief as long as it doesn't challenge or, or come against their faith or their belief. So most people say, well, if you believe that Jesus saves, Good for you. You know what? That's, that's, I mean, you, I, I believe what I believe. You believe, you believe what you believe. We can all believe the same thing. 
But I, hang on a second. What the gospel tells us is that although we're called to respect the individual dignity of every single person and respect what they believe, we can also respectfully disagree. What we're saying is, yes, not only, not only that Jesus saves, but that only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. He is the only way to the Father. He is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And God's plan for humanity, for us uh, as a church, God's plan is essentially our purpose. Uh, we said last week, this is what we may call in Latin, your sumo proposito, okay, or in English, your highest purpose, your main purpose in life, the highest goal, the sumo proposito, it is to know God for yourself and to make him known. The number one purpose, and again, this is, a, this is a, if, if you're a non-believer, you're new to church, you don't have to accept this, you don't have to embrace this thought, you don't have to believe this, that's okay. But if you say you're a Jesus follower, there's no option here. This is your sumo proposito. This is your highest purpose. This is bigger than your dream that you dreamt. This is bigger than the song that you sing. This is bigger than everything in life. Your, your number one purpose is for you to know God personally, which is why Jesus came in the first place, to make that possible. And then from the overflow of all the goodness that we receive, His grace, His mercy, His generosity, His compassion, His joy, we seek and endeavor to make Him known to the world. That is what we are supposed to do as the church. We summarize this here at Laos, and we call it inspiring the extraordinary. Or in the long form, we exist to inspire ordinary people to an extraordinary purpose in God. We want to be a church of normal people because we think that's what the church is. No one's better. No one's more spiritually elite than anyone else. No one's, you know, got a higher place or a higher layer or strata. There's no, there's no pyramid structure. It's this idea that the, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And the one thing we all have in common is we all are in desperate need of a Savior. And His name is Jesus. And so we embrace the fact that we're not perfect, we're broken, we're on a journey, we're ordinary people in all of our locations, but we live in this tension of where something in us, this is what ultimately led me to Christ, something in me wasn't satisfied with just living a life that was, that was just ordinary, just selfish, and would end with my death and nothing else. Something in me spoke, or, or, or how would you say, defied that narrative and said, no, but surely I'm made for more, right? Surely there's a purpose. Surely there's a reason why I'm here. That's why we say oftentimes, and when we baptize people, that's why they have in the teacher, that we are made for more and that God has an extraordinary purpose for us. But that purpose can only become a reality and can only be realized when we come into, the rela when we come into a relationship with Jesus to know him and make him known. So that's the foundation. Today, I want to kind of shift gears and turn a corner and in part two, uh, with a message I've, been called, I've entitled, Your Attention, Please. <laughs> Your Attention, Please. Today I want to build on that and go, well, what does making him known look like? And most of us who are raised in church or know church or familiar with church or watch church from the outside, our mind jumps to some person on some main street in some city standing on some kind of you know, thing, box, telling people they're going to go to hell. And it's like, well, that works, right? I mean, how many of us came to faith because someone stood in a box and shouted at us and told us we're going to go to hell? Uh, and second of all, where do you see that in the scriptures? You don't. Okay, so we jump to the conclusion that to make God known means we go outside the four walls of our buildings and make a bunch of people feel bad. Now listen carefully. What I'm not saying 
is that there, we shouldn't proclaim the gospel. We absolutely should. What I am saying is that proclaiming the gospel is more than a sermon or a song. It's a lifestyle. We proclaim the gospel with our lives. Again, I can give you loads of verses, the Apostle Paul, where he talks about with our lives and in giving our lives and the sacrifice of our lives, we proclaim to you the truth that we knew and received in Jesus. So there's a sense in where we do that. But today, before we get to that, I want to I pull back a second. And I want to talk about something, a part of how we make him known, that goes beyond not just the four walls of our buildings, but beyond the shores of this beautiful wee island. Now, help us get it kicked off. Let's, let me ask you a question. Let me pose a question to you. Have you ever needed help from someone who could have but would not? Have you ever needed help from someone who could have but would not? I think there's one thing worse than needing help and not getting it, and that's when you realize someone could have helped you, but you find out they chose not to. How many relationships break down? How many friendships trust levels are rattled? How many, how many people are wounded by the fact that we were in a position we needed help, and it was bad enough we didn't get the help, but what's worse, we come to find out later that the people who are close to us, who are supposed to love us, who we call friends or family, could have, but would not. I have many examples of this. One interesting one happened when I was about two years old. Uh, I'm going to call the story Living on the Ledge of Glory. Um, so as I was a mischievous, adventurous, curious child, one morning I woke up, I'm the oldest of four boys, it was me and at that time only one younger brother, I think it was about two and a half, and one morning I woke up and I got bored, and so I decided it would be a good idea in our two-story semi-detached house in the hometown that I come from, Carlo, to get out my bedroom window and to hang on the ledge in the hope that the gap between my little feet and the, the shed below wouldn't be big enough to kill me. Sounds like fun, right? So I did that, and I managed to drop down, and I was successfully on the roof, which I thought, I'm the man. And I was walking right up to the edge, looking down, thinking, oh my gosh, this is cool. Well, eventually, I get bored, and I say, it's time for me to get back in before my parents see me. Except I couldn't get back up the ledge. So I found myself trying to hang on, trying to get back up, realizing I can't make it. And now I'm in trouble because now I'm actually on the edge of the roof. So if I drop down from where I was, I might miss the roof completely and fall to my death. So I did the one thing that we all do when we have siblings. I asked my brother to help. Please help me. I'm falling. And he did the, all, the thing that all younger siblings do when they finally have an opportunity to get revenge on their older brother. Why are you laughing? Your nervous laughter tells me there's a little bit of confession going on here. He looked at me and said no. And the situation got so desperate and so bad, I started screaming until a neighbor next door saw me, freaked out, banged the door down, woke my parents and said, your child is hanging off the window ledge. I don't blame my parents for everything. There's certain things I take responsibility for. You with me? The one thing this valuable experience taught me is years later when the uh, Disney movie Lion King came out, this moment made a whole lot of sense to me. It's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, I know that feeling. I've been there before. I know what it is to be in a place of great vulnerability and great need and need help from someone that could have but would not. There's a difference, isn't there, between can't and won't. A lot of people 
use the term I can't when actually what they mean is I won't. They'll say I can't, what they mean is I don't want to. They'll say, oh, I, I really would love to. They don't, well, they wouldn't really love to, it's just lying. Uh, but I have some other thing that's more important to me, therefore, sorry, I can't. And there's a sense in where, and this has been mature, but we can't expect everybody every time in every situation to help us just when we ask. People are people. Life is busy. And nor can we always help everyone every time we're asked. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about general kindness. I'm not talking about when you're driving home uh, on a rainy day and the person's standing on the side of the road trying to get the wheel off their car and you can see the can't, and everybody else is driving by and you go, man, i got to be home for dinner. Like, I'm not talking about like, that moment where you should stop and help that person. I'm talking about when you're, when you're closely in relationship, when, you, when you're connected, when there's a sense where you have responsibility for something. And, you, and you, you keep saying you can't, but really what you're saying is I won't. Now, as we think about mission matters, what does that mean for us, the church? Well, as a church, we're not called to just do services or small groups. We're called to bring the light of the gospel to the world. But the world's a big place. And the world has many challenges. When we ponder things like injustice, things like suffering, things like global poverty, these are big, complex, multi-generational issues. And sometimes when you're faced with the scale of these problems, it can, it, can, it can make us feel so insignificant, so unable to affect any change. It's true. We may not be able to change that world. But what Jesus invites us to do in following him is change someone's world. And in our venues today, here in Dublin and Dock and Navin, we have a whole bunch of someones. And of all of us as someones, we're open and willing to fulfill the mission of Jesus' church by making a difference in the lives of some others. That's a whole bunch of someones reaching a whole bunch of some others. Who knows what can happen? The point is, is when we think about these global challenges, the, the, our response shouldn't be, oh, that's terrible. The response should be, well, what can I do? What can we do? It shouldn't be, well, that's beyond us, that's far from us, that's beyond. Like, the question should be, as we look at these things, what's, where's my place? What's my part? How can I contribute? This morning, I shared with our team here that we're preparing to send a short-term missions team to the nation of Brazil this August. We're so pumped for that. There's a whole bunch of fundraisers happening this month to help them. But I told our team that we don't really want to be the kind of church that says one day when we arrive, when we have all the people and all the buildings and all the money we need, that's when we'll help. You know, we have been greatly blessed by the generosity of so many people from so many parts of the world for so many years. And Jesus said, freely you received, freely you give. So even though we are, in some sense, spiritually speaking, a mission field that churches send teams to, at the same time, we are sending teams out. Why? Because the, the, the temptation is, well, let's just, let's just hoard everything for ourselves because we need and we need and we need and we need. But that's not God's heart. The heart of the, of the gospel, the heart of the kingdom, the mission, the church, is to give and to go. So perhaps, here's a better question. Perhaps a better question is not what can I do, but a better question is what should we do? And whether we can or cannot do it, that doesn't matter. It's what should we do. 
And if you want to track along, all of today's uh, notes are in the Bible app by version, so they're all there, plus additional stuff. So if you if you're li- like notes and like content, uh, that's all there in the Bible app by version. Open your phone, all locations, scan the QR code, and then you'll be able to track along. Today what I want to do then is to help us answer this question, what should we do? I want to turn to God's Word. Because God's Word is the foundation of knowing Him and making Him known. It isn't just a self-help book. It isn't just a book of wisdom. It isn't just a book of principles. It is the foundation of our lives if we are Jesus followers. If you're not, listen carefully, if you're not a Jesus follower, then this book does not apply to you. Ultimately, we believe that what it teaches will be true over your life regardless of what you believe. But you don't have to obey this book if you're not a Jesus follower. But if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you say, I'm a Jesus follower, this book is the foundation for your life. That's why every Sunday we turn to God's word for hope and for help, for the way and for wisdom to live life. We're going to look today at a very obscure, interesting, if you're raised in church, possibly well-known parable that Jesus told in Luke's gospel, chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And in most of your Bibles, the heading here will be the rich man and Lazarus. Now, let me give you some context. Uh, oftentimes when Jesus taught, he taught in a form of metaphorical uh, themes called parables. A parable, actually the word parable in English is two Greek words. Okay, it's the, it's the word para, which means alongside, and the verb bole, which is the verb to throw. So throw alongside. The idea of a parable is you would tell a fictional story to illustrate or to throw alongside a fundamental truth. So oftentimes, Jesus would use metaphors, and of course, because most people are visual anyway, but especially in the first century, he would use metaphors of farmers and agriculture and things that they knew to get across a core principle and truth. And so in this parable, there's two main characters. There's three characters, but there's two main ones. There is the rich man, who we're not told much about him because he's a fictitious character, other than he was very rich. There's a poor man who's a beggar called Lazarus. And then there's also a mention to Abraham because in, if the, Jesus' audience was primarily Jewish. And at that time, a Jewish view of heaven involved being welcomed into eternity by the father of the Jewish faith, which, of course, was Abraham. And so the story starts, this is Jesus. And again, this is, Jesus always told a parable in response. He's trying to respond to something either that's been asked of him, told him, or he has seen. And in this context, he's speaking a lot about value. He's speaking about stewardship. If you go back in the context, you can see the start of the chapter, the power of the shrewd manager. He has some additions. He's, he's trying to talk about how our interaction, our relationship with the things that we own and our responsibility to use those to help other people. So in verse 19, here we go. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And that was as disgusting 2,000 years ago as it is right now. But again, Jesus set the story. So we told he's a rich man, dressed in purple, so purple was the, was the ancient color of royalty in many cultures. And the reason was it was one of the most difficult dyes to create. It took so much resource, so much money to create the color purple that oftentimes kings would have it like in abundance to say, not only can I afford this, but I can afford all this. And so this guy, even though he isn't a king, 
dressed like one. The best of fine linen. And when it says he lived in luxury, when you look at the Greek text, what it's actually saying was he ate well and slept well every single day. Which, by the way, is not a problem per se. Until we see verse 20. At his gate was laid. Why was he laid? Well, he was probably laid there because he couldn't walk there. Perhaps he was disabled. Perhaps he had some kind of disability. Oftentimes in that culture... Because there was no social welfare system, there, was, there were no charities, there was very little in terms of helping people, which is one of the things the church pioneered in history. The church very often were the first group to open feeding centers. Most hospitals in the world were opened by the church, most schools by the church. The church historically didn't just go in and preach a message of good news to make people feel happy. They brought infrastructure and oftentimes gave up their lives to meet the needs of the broken people in the community that they were trying to reach. That wasn't the case here. So what people would do as an act of pity was they would drag a poor disabled person near a place of resource, in this case, to the gate of the rich man, hoping that as they tossed out the leftovers, as they were thrown over the gate for the wild dogs to eat, that maybe he could wrestle with the wild animals and steal for himself a portion of something just to live every day. And it's interesting that dogs are mentioned because in our culture, generally speaking, dogs are considered to be cute things. They're domesticated. You know, people, most people, unless you're a cat lover, love dogs uh, and so on. But in the first century, Jews as a culture, their relationship with dogs was like our relationship with rats. They hated dogs. No, Jews didn't have dogs as pets, people. They hated them. So the fact that dogs are even mentioned is like a shocker. The fact that these dogs are licking his open wounds does two things. It sickens the people hearing, which is what I'm designed to do, but also shows this man was in such desperation that he didn't have the strength, ability, or resource to stop these dogs from licking his wounds. And Jesus sets up this story perfectly. This man living in luxury, this beggar, at his gate. And there's four things I want to show you in this text. The first one is this. The first thing Jesus wants us to see is the danger of indifference. We're going to realize in a moment that what Jesus is actually speaking, at the heart of what Jesus is going to address in the rich man's life is indifference. That right at his gate was a daily need that he not only had the resource, but we're going to see the responsibility to do something about, but he was indifferent. Well, what causes indifference? What caused indifference in our culture and what caused indifference in that culture 2,000 years ago? It's the same thing. It's the nature of entitlement. One of the most dangerous things in our culture right now is this inherent sense of entitlement. I was born, I breathe, therefore I'm old. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I'm old this, I deserve this. There used to be a time when we talked about responsibilities. Now, everybody wants to talk about rights. I'm, I'm owed this, I deserve this, this is my right, I'm going to demand it, I'm going to shout for it, I'm going to scream for it. People are all about their rights, but no one cares anymore for responsibilities. People want people to come and fix their thing, but they're unwilling to fix their own thing or even help fix some other one's thing. It's like, understand that we, especially living here in Ireland, we have so many privileges, so many blessings living in this country. It's wonderful. But with great you know, uh, rights or, or privileges comes responsibility. And what Jesus is speaking to is that if we're not careful, especially those who are, again, who are Jesus followers, if we allow that 
cultural sense of entitlement to come into our faith, then all of a sudden we can become indifferent to the challenges in the world. One of the things that should mark us as Jesus followers is that we will never be indifferent to the pain and suffering of the world. We care deeply. Why? Because we have been cared for deeply. We love deeply. Why? Because we have been loved deeply. Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 6, demonstrated, proved, laid it out, gave it all. His love for us in this. When we were still sinners, he died for us. He didn't die for us when we became Christians. He didn't die. We weren't rewarded with salvation because we earned our way or proved our way. Even if we never believed in him, even those right now in all three locations who choose not to believe in him, Jesus still loves you and died for you anyway. And we've got to guard against this, 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 this sense of entitlement and indifference that's so pervasive in our culture. This is why we're talking about compassion this week. This is why last week in Dublin, next week in the dock, and today in Navin, we have this great organization who are called Compassion. And we parked them for many years, and they exist to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And more than just the organization, what, what, what does compassion do? As an organization, they help us as Jesus followers. They help us as humans. And they help us as a church to do something about the injustice, suffering, and poverty in the world. But long before we can relate to compassion as an organization, we have to have compassion in our hearts. For God so loved the world, John 3.16 for God was so compassionate towards us that he gave his one and only son. See, compassion is important, not because compassion is cute or cuddly or makes sense in a church context, because if generosity is the thing that defies and fights against entitlement, which it is, the way you kill selfishness is give. The only way to kill selfishness is to become selfless. It's in the act, not the feeling, the act of being generous that we kill that sense of entitlement. Well, if that's true, then you could say, what kills indifference, what combats indifference, the solution or cure to indifference is compassion that we see and care for people. The word compassion can be defined in the English dictionary as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another stricken by mis misfortune accompanied. This is really important. So the first line we all go, Oh, yeah, I, I've understood compassion. Like the compassion is a feeling of deep sympathy, deep empathy. I feel sorrow. I, I feel so bad for those, those poor old souls who are strucken, stricken and struck down by misfortune. That's only half the definition. To truly have compassion and to be compassionate. It says we, it, these feelings, these sentiments are accompanied by a strong desire strong desire. Usually we call strong desire passion. If you're passionate, passion is a strong desire. True compassion has passion. That's why it's in the word, people. It's to be passionate about broken people, passionate about word and passionate about doing whatever we can to alleviate, remedy, or solve the suffering. And again, we can't solve the world's suffering. But the whole point we want to see in this parable is we have been called of God and we are responsible to solve someone's. Verse 22, the story continues. The time came when the beggar died. 
And notice Jesus says, and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The reason why most scholars reckon Jesus said this is because there's no reference to his burial. More than likely in that culture, like some parts of the world today, uh, one of the jobs of the city workers is they would come around in the morning and pick up the cadavers and corpses of human beings who died in the night of starvation. And they would bring them to the local dump and unceremoniously dump their body with all the trash of the city. So not only did Lazarus suffer in life, not only did he suffer in death, but now because of his state, because of his low position society, more than likely the last great act of seeing him go was simply unceremoniously dump his body in a, in a, in a rubbish heap. Whereas, we're told, the rich man also died and was buried. And just like today in this culture, this first culture, rich people who had resource would, would invest greatly in their place of burial. They'd have great uh, tombs. They might be decorated. They might have traditions. You could tell, like oftentimes, this other day I was walking with my kids. We were going for a walk uh, uh, through this kind of park, and part of the walk took us through an old graveyard. And it's funny because you walk through the graveyard, and you can see in the graveyard, mostly speaking, those who had wealth and those who didn't. Some graves had literally no headstone. Like nothing. You could tell it's a grave, but there's nothing to say this person ever existed. Whereas other ones were these ornate temple-like structures which boasted of the wealth of the person in life even after they're gone. In the same way, what, what, what Jesus pointed out is that even in death, the rich man <coughs> was wealthy and tried to portray his wealth. Whereas the injustice of Lazarus' life didn't just end in his death, but even how he was buried. But here's the, great, here's the great mix. Here's the part of the story no one would expect it. It says in verse 23, in Hades. And Hades, of course, is a Greek word for hell. In hell, where he was in torment, we're told he looked up and saw Abraham far away. And to his shock and dismay, Lazarus was by his side. Now, Many scholars call this a theological inversion. Why? Because at that time, the Jewish belief was, if you were wealthy and successful, you were blessed by God. If you weren't wealthy and weren't successful, you were cursed by God. And so it made sense that if you lived well in life and you were blessed by God, that you would be welcomed into eternally heavenly places and, continued, and continue to be blessed by God. What no one expects is Jesus flips the script and says matters of godliness and faith and eternity aren't matters of external possession, wealth, or success. They're matters of the heart. And ultimately what determines where we will go, because we will all go somewhere for eternity, isn't our morality or our success or how great we were in life. It's where we put our trust and how we chose to live in light of that trust the time that we had. We have this this rich man who's all of a sudden in hell, which he's surprised about, and he's even more surprised that as he's in hell suffering, he can, meta against the metaphor, he can metaphorically see Lazarus who's sitting at the, literally the chief person of the entire Jewish faith. He'd be like, one day, if you're a Leinster fan dying and seeing Johnny Sexton, the right hand of God, and going, oh my goodness, like what's going on? Like it's, it's like, well, maybe, it, maybe that's why he's so good. But the point is, no one expects it. Now, as I was reading this week in prayer, I came across this quote in a commentary. Here's what it says. It says, In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, 
bear in mind that Jesus is not condemning rich people. This is very important. He's not condemning all which while suggesting that the poor will all go to heaven. Just because you're poor doesn't mean you go to heaven. Each parable teaches only one point. Jesus doesn't question how the man got his money or that he, or that he even has it. The rich man isn't even necessarily a bad man. The issue is the rich man, we're told, may even have been uh, a deeply caring person, dismayed by unemployment and, and inflation figures, or he may have been a generous donor to charitable causes. But whatever else he was in this story, he is, here's the key word, blind. What's another word for blind? <coughs> Indifference. He is blind to the person in need who is sitting outside his gate. Therefore, he is damned for his casual indifference to the person right at his door. The point isn't rich is, is going to hell and poor is spiritual. The point is this man had wealth, he had resources, he had means, and he had the opportunity to do something. I love this line, but he was casually indifferent towards. And Jesus is kind of making the point that that is not the heart of the Father. And again, it's good for you if you're not a Jesus follower to lean in and go, I don't want to live my life. That's a miserable way to live your life. But especially if you're a Jesus follower. There's no option here. We cannot choose to be willfully blind to the suffering of the world. Maybe you come from a part of the world, Africa or other countries, where you've seen suffering. And now you live here and God has blessed you and you're stable and you're secure. Listen to me, never forget. Never forget. One of the best ways we can carry the cause of the broken in our hearts is by choosing not to forget. By choosing in our prayer. Yeah, when you're praying for your new car, your new house, your new whatever you need, whatever you want, to ask God, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. And in the praying for the nations of the world, the, I suppose the, the, most, the most poignant application is don't walk over the broken person in Dublin, Navin, or Dundalk on the way to change someone else's life halfway across the world. It's the idea that compassion isn't a missions thing, international thing, a charity thing. Compassion should be a hallmark characteristic for all of us who are Christians. I told in verse 24, and the rich man then calls out to him, <coughs> Father Abraham, have pity on me. <coughs> Which is interesting because he never had pity on Lazarus. <coughs> and send Lazarus. And understand that send, the, the tense there is an imperative. So even in death, even in hell, this guy is trying to tell Lazarus what to do. How many know a boss like that? It's like, come on, dude. Um, to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So really interesting is, again, metaphorical, there's no real reference of fire in hell in the Bible, but there is the feeling of fire. And this guy is in so much suffering that he's asking, if, if I could just get a drop of water on my tongue. Which is interesting because in life, Lazarus would have been like so unclean to him, he would have walked around him because he was so filthy. But now in hell, he's so desperate. He said, get that beggar, filthy beggar, to dip his finger in water because that's how much... I'm suffering. But Abraham replied, <coughs> Son, remember that in your lifetime, you is crucial. You received good things. While Lazarus 
received bad things. But now he is uh, comforted here and you are in agony. Besides, verse 26, besides all this, between us uh, and you is a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And again, there's truth in this. At the end of the day, whatever our eternal destination is, it's a destination and it's permanent. And one of the things our culture is, is, is obsessed with right now is making permanent things unpermanent. The idea that we can, we can make choices and then later on unchoose and that we're entitled to change. There's certain things, certain decisions you cannot undo. If you've chosen to not be faithful in your marriage, if you've chosen to not lead your kids well, if you've chosen to be an absolute scoundrel that cares about no one but themselves and decides all of a sudden that you're entitled to a relationship that doesn't exist, well, best of luck with that, my friend. You can't have everything in one life just because you want it. In this instance, this rich man is facing <clears throat> the greatest inevitability of them all, <clears throat> which is the third thing. And that is you can't undo the choice you made in life when your life is over. God gives us the option. We have a choice, but it's our choice. Understand, God never created hell for people. People go, if God is so loving, if God is so kind, then how can he create a place called hell and put good people in there? Well, how do we know who's good? Is it your definition of good? And if we, if we were able to resurrect Adolf Hitler and ask him, hey, Adolf, who in your estimation would you call good? Is it his definition of good? Who gets to decide what good means? Well, there has to be a standard, right? Otherwise, anybody could go and everybody could go. <coughs> Which, if you were a, a Jew living in the 1940s in Poland... <coughs> You would not believe in or embrace a God who allowed someone like Hitler into heaven, right? So who's going to adjudicate between what is ultimately good and what is subjectively good? God does. God is good. And his word tells us what good is. And it may not be culturally appropriate, and it may feel like a sting or a slap, and we may not agree with it, but it's still the truth. And we have to choose. And ultimately speaking, Hell is the place. Hell is the place for people who want to choose a life without God. People have these pictures of hell being a place of fire and, and torment. Again, we don't know everything about hell, but we do know is this. is that hell, in essence, is the absence of God. What is God? God is good. What is good? Taste is good. Food is good. Light is good. Sleep is good. Laughter is good. All the things that are of God that are good won't be in hell. It's void of God. It's actually, if you think about it, and this is kind of crazy, it's God's last great uh, present gift to the autonomy of humanity. You are so hell-bent on living in my absence. Here you go. God doesn't send people there. People choose to go there. They want to go there. And when they go there and they realize, actually, this is not a good idea, too late. We face the inevitable. Now, again, that's not the point of today's message. What we're talking about is compassion. But a sub-application could be this. What Abraham is saying is that you had good things, and Lazarus didn't. And you didn't use your good things to help Lazarus who didn't. In other words, the way of saying this, if you have the resources to help and choose not to, you're going to face a consequence for that. In essence, what, what Jesus is saying is that this is a message of stewardship. It's not bad to have things. 
you can and should have things. I pray for you every morning. I pray that God blesses you and God increases you. I always pray for our church that God gives people promotions, that God blesses their marriages, that God blesses their mental health. I always pray, like this morning, that the joy of the Lord will be yours. I'm praying for you to go forward in life, for you to live up and live out your extraordinary purpose. There's nothing wrong with having things. But when things have you, to the point where your obsession with things makes you willfully blind to the suffering around you, all that Jesus is saying is one day you will give an account. Why? Because those things aren't your thing. They were given to you and they can be taken from you. God's going to ask us, what did you do with the time, the talent, and the treasure that I gave you on earth? Did you use it all for yourself? Really? Did you completely miss my purpose, my heart, my nature, my character? Did you really, were you really that selfish that you could literally choose to completely ignore the brokenness and suffering in the world around you? It's a parable in essence of stewardship. And again, it continues in verse 27. He answered, <clears throat> Then I beg you, Father, <clears throat> and again, here he is bossing Lazarus around. How many, how many are grateful to God that at least one thing's going to happen in heaven? Nobody can boss you around. Come on, somebody. Hear all the employees say amen. Dang, right, about time. What it doesn't say is all your boss will be in hell, by the way, just saying. They might be in heaven too, but just won't be able to boss you around. So <clears throat> he says, uh, <clears throat> I beg you, Father Aaron, but tell Lazarus to go to my father's house, to my family. Uh, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Now understand, what seems like a genuine act of compassion, like, hey, at least tell my bros because I don't want to come here, although that's part of it. We're going to see if something deeper is going on. <clears throat> and when he says at least, at least let, let this, them tell them, Abraham says to have Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets was basically the Old Testament. So at this time, the New Testament hadn't written. So basically what he's saying, they, they have the word of God. If they're not willing to listen to the word of God, if they're not willing to trust the word of God, if they're not willing to take truth from that, then no one's going to convince them otherwise. To which he responds, which is quite funny, because you can see one, one of the main prides of humanity, one of the main sins of humanity is pride, right? Thinking we're all it. And even in hell, this guy's full of pride because he says, no. Like Abraham is speaking to him and he says, like, a, like an entitled two-year-old toddler, no. It's like, well, I didn't, I don't ask your permission. It's like, it is what it is. Well, I disagree. That's okay. Spend the rest of that eternity in Hades. Like, I mean, no. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. The word repent means turn around, change their ways. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even, even if someone rises from the dead. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is bringing the parable to the conclusion, but he's also pointing to the religious leaders that were listening to him. That if you're not willing to pay attention to God's word, you'll never listen to God's son. Because what's about to happen is someone is about to die. And someone is about to raise, and that is Jesus. And what Jesus already prophesying and foretelling in the parable is even in his resurrection, 
these religious leaders who are so selfish and so casually indifferent to the suffering around them will completely ignore his resurrection. And that is the fourth and final part, the ultimate invitation. See, when the man said, the rich man said, send Lazarus to my brothers, what seems like a genuine act of compassion is actually self-justification. Again, when you study the text, you realize what he's actually saying in that is, if I had had someone sent to me, if, if it was, it's almost like he's saying, this is not fair. If I had seen someone who was dead, but alive again, and proclaimed the truth to me, I would have listened, and I wouldn't be here. So, since that's not fair on me, at least give those I care for a fair shot. He's not acting in compassion, even in death, even in hell. He in his pride is justifying his own foolishness. And what Jesus is trying to say is, no matter who was sent, if people have, de- have, de- have determined to close their heart to the things of God, nothing's going to change their mind because they're closed. But if people are genuinely open to the things of God, there is hope and there is help. What Jesus is preparing to tell these people, as he said in John 14, 15, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way, as we learned last week, because there is no other name. And what Jesus is saying is that we like, we like, we like to think that, if, oh, if I had this, or if I had that, if I had their money, if I had their parents, if I had their talent, if I was born in their country, if I had their skin color, if I had their accent, if I had their good looks, if I had their strength, if I had their maturity, their spirit, it's almost like, All of my problems would be solved if I had what other people have. And God said, you have everything you need in me. And if you're genuinely open to me and open to my word, there is hope and there is help. It was the amazing author and thinker C.S. Lewis, an Irish man, said this. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen. This is very important. People say, oh, when I, when, I, when I see, I'll believe. Watch this. He says, not only because I see the sun is risen, but because by the sun, I see everything else. It is the word. It is the truth. It is Jesus that allows us to see everything else. And again, if we're in this room or in one of our locations, and we're, we're saying, I'm a Jesus follower. Let's understand. To follow Jesus in his cause, to follow Jesus' cause, to, to be a Jesus follower, which means you follow Jesus, in his mission, this whole series about mission matters, then we must also follow Jesus in his compassion. You cannot do the work of God without the love of God. You cannot do the will of God without the love of God. It's not enough just to do good things. We've got to do good things for the right reasons and do it because we love people, because we feel the pain and brokenness, and because we're passionate to be part of the solution. So, as we close, here's the question. What can you do? What can you do? What can I do, James? What can I do with all the suffering and justice and poverty and brokenness in the world? Here's a better question. What should you do? If God is speaking to you right now, the question is, what should you do? You cannot change everyone's world, but you can change someone's world. 
This is why we're so passionate about our partnership with Compassion. Because Compassion helped us to do something for someone. And it's so amazing to hear the stories over the years of how many children's lives are being transformed through the amazing work of Compassion. But a couple of years ago, when we first started this journey, I decided that if I'm going to ask all of you to give your money to help some kids, I better go check and make sure where the money's going. Hello, everybody. So we went down to Brazil to visit, I have a photo here, uh, our, one of our Compassion Projects. And I got the opportunity to meet some of uh, our Compassion kids. And I was really focused on my mission. I wanted to talk to the staff, you know, where have they come from, how have they trained, what motivates them. I wanted to see the facilities, where were the learning, what were the classrooms like. I wanted to eat their food, because I was in Brazil, and that's always a good thing. But I wanted to make sure these kids weren't getting leftovers tossed over the gate from the rich man's house. But the best, I wanted to go visit their family. I wanted to, I wanted to see, I'm a very, I told you before, my spiritual gift is a, is a gift of suspicion. So I, want, I wanted to see everything, and I was very thorough. And of course, it was amazing. Uh, I got to visit a couple of centers. Right here is one of my compassion kids, Davi. Uh, I went to see his house, meet his family. His parents were like, why are you doing this for our child? Like, we know we're in desperate need. And we know that we can't give our kids what they need. But we cannot understand why you there would do so much to help us here. Who are we to you? And you know what I was able to say? Because of what God has done in me, I care for you. I don't even know you. But our family loves your family. We pray for you. And honestly, it's not, it's not a right. It's a privilege that we get to do this for you. And getting to see these kids and the joy that it brought their lives. But one thing that really blew me away was when I went to visit our first compassion child, her name is Chris Liney. A part of the, of the day I spent with her was I got to go to her house and her parents tragically passed away. And ironically, I was there on Father's Day, which is a complete God thing. And I got to pray for her and I got to visit. She lives with one of her aunties and showed me her very simple house. And, you know, part of it is you go around, they show you their kitchen and their living room and show me their bedroom. And I went into her bedroom and we're all there. And she says, this is the most important thing I own. And it wasn't an Xbox. And it wasn't an iPhone. And it wasn't an, an Apple Mac. It wasn't keys to a car or some expensive wardrobe. She pointed to a few scraps of paper on her wardrobe. The letters my wife had written to her and said, these are the most important things in my world. I stood there and I thought, man, we are so crap. Honestly, this girl's most Precious possession is piece of paper with kind words on it. And we're worried about clothes and material things. Again, not bad, but like just in perspective, it was like, why? why? We, we need to make sure we get ourselves in check so we don't get caught up with the wrong things. And she pointed to this, these words that my wife wrote her in Portuguese, that many are the plans of God for your life. You are a beautiful daughter of God. And we love you. Now, our money helps clothe her. Our money helps feed her. Our money 
educators, educator. In fact, the manager of this center, I did a little interview with her and said, tell me where did you come from? She was once a compassion child, graduated in college, and could not shake the sense that the best thing I can do in my life is to go back to the center I came from and serve these children. Our money does all that. But it's our love for these people that sends letters, that sends teams, that reminds them God loves them. 30 euro a month. Depending on what kind of drink you order in your coffee shop, that could be three extra large wakamaki yaka latte latte soya lattes. For me, it's a lot of espressos. 24 espressos. We can live out these things. Listen to me. I'm not telling you what you should do. I'm saying, ask God. God, what should I do? I would love, as a pastor, that every person in our church sponsors at least one child. I think that's a good thing. At least one. There's no rule to sponsoring more. You should sponsor more. I think it's a great investment of your money. But beyond just what's out there across the ocean, every day there's brokenness in our community. Today, as you go home, you will inevitably be faced with people of brokenness. Do we choose willful blindness? Or do we choose to see as Jesus sees, to love them? Three next steps, and we're going to pray. What's the first thing practically I can do then? Number one, acknowledge. Ask yourself the question, what do I need to see that up until now I've chose to unsee? What do you need to see? Maybe it's someone on your street. Maybe it's a person in your class. Maybe it's someone that you know particularly begs in a certain area. Yeah, maybe don't go and give them 50 euro. Maybe buy them a sandwich. Maybe more importantly, ask them their story. So the easiest thing we can do is throw money. The hard thing is actually treat them like a person. What do you need to see? Second thing is attitude. Ask yourself this question. What do I need to feel? I'm not, and most of you notice, I'm kind of notorious. I'm not the most emotionally in touch person in the world. Sometimes I have to ask myself, what am I supposed to be feeling right now? I'm not really sure. Like I, I can see what's happening, and I'm rationalizing it, but something tells me I should, I should feel something. And sometimes it's good for us to ask ourselves, what do I need to feel right now? So once you acknowledge and see, what do you need to feel? Is it compassion? Patience? Whatever. And thirdly, third, third next step, action. What do I need to do? Because love, by definition, is action. Love is not a word. Love is not a sentiment. Love is not a feeling. Love is action. Every time I marry a couple, I say to you, so and so, to such and such, and you, da da da, and we do these vows, like, I promise to serve, give, stay faithful to, until death do us part. That's love in action. Only when those things don't happen does that love break down. Love is action. <laughs> I said it time and time again, when it comes to our church, I don't want to be the biggest church or the best church in the world, but my goal is that we will be the most generous church that we can be. That is the heart of God. So I want you to pray. I want you to think. I want you to ask God, what should I do? Here, in our, in our local community, and when it comes to releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name. If you, if you were here in Dublin, or if you're in the dock, and you haven't met Compassion yet, there's still time. You can, if, you, if you notice in your, in your uh, seat cup holder here, wherever, wherever your, your 
thing is in Navin or Doc, there's a next steps card. And one of the things that you can write on the next steps card is I would like more information about compassion. Or you can talk to our team in Dundalk and uh, Dublin today about what it means to sponsor a child. Obviously, Navin, you have compassion there with you. But I want to encourage you, let's, let's not allow this moment to just be a feeling. Let's make this moment an action that we are a compassionate people.